So, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike. Um, I am a son, as many, most of the guys here are. Um, I am also a father. I've got three kids. I'm married to Fliss. Um, and I also work on, lead one of our kids' work teams. Um, but I want you to think that this morning, all of us, some of us may be fathers or mothers, some of us may not, but all of us are sons or daughters, and I'll be talking about that better. So I want you to think about that, because you can all relate to being sons or daughters. Um, so before I go into this bit, we're talking about Hebrews 12, um, and it's after the bit Mel preached on 1 to 2 last week, which is the really exciting bit. And then we're moving on to the next bit. So I thought I did a poll, and I looked at Wycliffe in 2007, did a poll of the most popular Bible verses. Um, and actually, I was slightly surprised. It was Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. And I'm reading it because I think it's really relevant as we delve into endurance and discipline and suffering this morning, which is what we're talking about. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. And these topics we're going to talk about this morning are difficult topics, and they're topics we often don't like to delve into. Um, they're not necessarily very cheery, but we need to because at the end of the day, this is God's word. Um, as we've heard before, it's, it's above us. And because all scripture is useful for teaching, it says in 2 Timothy, so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be competent and equipped for every good work. And so that's why we preach through books, so we cover everything. So we're going to equip ourselves this morning. That's what I'm going to hopefully try and do help us to equip ourselves to face difficulties, battles, hardships, testing, discipline, hostility, different things which Jesus faced. And we need to because these are the realities of life. This is the world we live in. And so the Bible addresses all of those things. And some of you will know that from experience, and some of us may have less experience of that, and we've actually had a fairly easy time. But whether we've had a lot of that or not so much, this is really relevant this morning. So I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray. Hebrews 12, verse 3 to 17. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
So we've just had that beginning of Hebrews 12, that great exhortation to run the race, to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's like a battle cry that Mel preached on last week. It's like a banner to rally to, laying aside every weight, talked about binning stuff that gets in the way, to look at Jesus who's seated at the right hand of God. And now the question is how? What does that look like? How do we work that out? And so what I want you to really take away from today, if you only take away one thing from today, is that we're doing that looking to Jesus it's really just a continuation of last week, fixing our eyes on him, considering him. In Colossians 3, Paul exhorts the church to set their minds on things that are above, and that's what we're about this morning, looking to Jesus. So I'm just going to pray. Father, I pray that this morning, as we, as we listen and as we worship you, that you'll help us to fix our eyes on you. And that as we do that, you'll fix our hearts on you, that you'll lift our hearts in adoration and to see you for who you are and that we'll glorify your name, and that we'll get your perspective, and you'll show us more of your amazing Father heart for us. So there are a few points I want to just make as we go through today. The first one is just to remind us that God is sovereign. And Hebrews 2 verse 1 talks of Jesus and says, he left nothing outside his control. Even though at present we don't see everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. He is sovereign over everything. And also God is totally trustworthy. That Proverbs, trust in the Lord, and he will make your path straight. Submit to him. And so to do that, we need to know him. We need to know what it is to be satisfied in him. And thirdly, we need to look to Jesus. He's our very present help in time of trouble, it says in Psalm 46. So firstly, verse 3, consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It says of Jesus earlier in Hebrews 12, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and the shame. So what does it mean to consider Jesus? I think firstly it means that we notice the pain and the sorrow in his life, in what he went through. We think of how he endured. We think of the sweat, the tears, the mocking, the scourging at the cross. We think of the rejection by his family, his friends. We think of the crown on his head of thorns even though we can't imagine what that's like for him. And then we notice how he faced that hostility. No one else has been sinless and had to face the kind of hostility Jesus faced. And it wasn't, we're not talking about mild hostility, such hostility from everyone, even from those close to him, from his family, in his hometown, betrayed, scoffed at by people he'd blessed and helped, people who'd been lauding him before, by those ultimately who he created. Um, and he's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, says in Hebrews 1. So, you know, such a paradox, but yet how he faced that hostility. And also we consider him as the son. And this is the important bit. He's not just a good example for us. He's the son. You are all sons and daughters. And in him, we are brought into God's family. You are sons of the living God, it says. Romans 8.29, he is the firstborn among many brothers. And so you're part of the family after him, and you share, we all share in his likeness. We're all loved by God because of him, and God's grace comes on us because of him. And so we can follow him in every way, and we can share, says you all share in the same spirit. And through him we both have access to God by that one spirit. So he's not just an inspiration for us, although he is. He's actually the one who can strengthen us because he lives eternally because he's already conquered death and because his spirit is with us. So, 
That first thing is consider him. Think about what he went through. In this time coming up to Easter, maybe dwell on the passion narratives as we're, as we're looking forward to the cross. Study the Gospels for places where he faced trials. and Meditate on his character, his actions, how he responded. Spend time just digging into that. In kids' work, each week we talk about where is Jesus. We look at a story and we try and identify where is Jesus in this? What is Jesus doing? Where are his footprints? What can you see of him? And that's for you to do. Do that on your own. Do that with friends. Do that with your spouse. Do it in your life group. Look at where he is, what he's doing. And most of all, as Mel was encouraging us last week, spend time with him. Spend time in worship. Spend time praying, talking to him, sharing everything with him. Verses 4 to 6. Discipline is for sons. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the Hebrews, they're obviously going through a lot of struggle here because his comparison is, well, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you haven't been killed yet. So that just gives us a perspective of what they're going through. They're clearly going through a lot of stress, a lot of difficult situations. We don't know what those are, but that's just giving us that perspective. But it's meant as an encouragement, I think, that God, God's kept you. You're still here. God's kept you alive. And actually, you know, we can look back at Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we had that great list of faith heroes who accomplished a lot of wonderful things. We also had the list, unnamed, of people who went through all kinds of difficult things, and their life didn't look like a success, and they had trials and tribulations, and the Hebrews are maybe somewhat in that space. They've got stress and persecution, and something is obviously happening to them that the person writing thinks they might grow weary, they might grow faint-hearted, and he wants to encourage them. And these experiences are part of Christian life. They may be different in different parts of the world, they may look very different, but this is the life we live in, the author wants us to be encouraged. So I thought I'd maybe give us a few examples. Some of these you might be familiar with. So it might be loss of livelihood. You might have lost a job. I spoke to a friend recently who leads a church in Zimbabwe and the unemployment rate that's about 90%. And their business recently had to basically go down because their main client who they relied on was struggling and couldn't pay them. So they went from 13 staff down to two, which doesn't include him, so he's now not on payroll. Um, Praise God, God actually provided his wife with a job just as he was losing his. But you may have experienced that. You may have experienced the loss of a job or financial insecurity. It might be in some places food security. We don't have that problem very often, although we help a lot of people who do through the food bank. Uh, one recent story from Burundi it was a Bible study, and a lady was falling asleep at the Bible study, and the guy running it said, what's wrong with you? And she said, well, we haven't eaten for three days. It's difficult. Um, might be loss of freedom. Again, we don't experience that so much here. But get prayer calendars through the doors. You might get something from Open Doors or Christian Solidarity Worldwide or something like that, asking you to pray for believers in other places, places like North Korea where it's, it's dangerous to meet, or places like the Middle East where there's often relational breakdown because of faith. So those might be some situations. might be loss of property. I know that's happened to people here recently. Um, I emailed this friend this week from a friend in Angola, and their 
working with unreached people in the bush, and they came back from their trip and found that their security guards had relieved them of quite a number of their possessions. Um, And they said, in all the ups and downs of the last few weeks, it's fair to say we're grateful to call this place home. Life always comes with challenges, and our lives are no different. Jesus promised us that in this world we'd have trouble, but it's an honor doing what we're doing. You might have had other problems. You might have had adversity from colleagues or adversity from family. You might have had health issues. Um, There are lots of different things that we can go through. But in all of these, we're to consider Jesus. Uh, In fact, as we look at those things, I think it's easy for us to try and look at other people around us to be inspired. But actually, that's not what we're urged to do. Although stories may inspire us, we're urged to keep our eyes on Jesus, to look to him because he's not just about inspiring us, he's about strengthening us and helping us through. So I think the next question is, who's in control? And that's going back to what I said before, that God is in control. And I read Psalm 73 this morning, kind of quite by accident, as I saw it as I was reading at the table this morning. And the psalmist is basically saying, all the evil people are fat and wealthy. Their eyes are popping out because they're eating so much. They've got it all easy. They're sleek and everything's going well with them. And I wake up rebuked every morning and in trouble. Um, and when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So the psalmist knows what it is to be weary when there's adversity around him. Uh, and I'll come back to the answer in a minute. But we can have that, that sense of, of difficulty of complaint that circumstances are difficult and that they seem to be good and rosy for everyone else for people around us it's so difficult but this what, what's in here in verses five and six is from proverbs and it's a section addressed my son it's instructions from a father so i think we see this as instructions from the father to a son it follows on from the bit i said earlier trusting in the lord and leaning on him and says don't despise discipline because he only reproves those he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So it's clearly what he's trying to get at is the, what we go through, we have a sovereign father whose heart is for good for us and is, allows things as part of his training for us. I read a bit from C.S. Lewis this week and he was talking about what God's love is like. And he says, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, who he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. So the, the outworking of the Father's heart, of his abounding love and grace, is to make us more like him. He gives of himself. His love has no need but his love is, is 100% giving. It's not a love we can relate to because we're not like that. But his love is perfectly giving and he loves to make us more like him. He loves to turn our character. But he does that through a lot of training. And I think this is so important. I think this is really the bedrock of endurance. And now I know I'm speaking of someone who hasn't gone through a lot of difficult trials. So I'm not speaking from massive experience of being persecuted and all that. But I think this is the bedrock, really, of living the Christian life, is, that, is our identity, is that you are sons and daughters, that you are loved, and that he delights in you. And I want you to go over that this week and remind yourself of that 
as we do kind of freedom in Christ, going through identity in God. Those things are so important, and we need to know that and relate to him, and we'll talk about that a bit more. And when we encounter hardship, when we don't understand the things that are happening to us, we need to remember that he delights in us, and we need to remember that he's also in charge. If he wasn't in charge, I think life would be really scary. We wouldn't know why stuff was happening. We wouldn't know what was going to happen with it. But actually, although it's hard to understand sometimes, the fact that God's in charge is such a wonderful truth because we know that he is in control and we know that he's allowing these things for our good. And we'll come on to that. It's also really important that we experience his love daily and that we learn to go to him. And that actually, when, when we're not going through those difficult times, our natural response is thanking him, calling on him, going to him, so that when we hit training and discipline and difficulties, that's still our natural response. And when we know him, when we know these, what Paul calls light momentary afflictions, that's how Paul describes what we go through compared with the eternal glory that God's got for us to share in. When we know that that's a loving discipline of a perfect heavenly father, a father who's totally in control, we can endure. And this is what the psalmist found You go to the end of Psalm 73 and he's understood now what happens to the evil people in the the end. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the 18th century preacher. I read this a long time ago, and it's always stayed with me, so I looked it up. And, and this is really about how important it is to go on knowing God and meeting with him. He's, he's talking about manna, um, talk, preaching on a passage from Exodus. He says, Don't try to live on last year's manna. Stale experiences are poor food. I know no dish that is worse than cold experience. You need to have a daily realization of the things of God. Hourly, feed on Christ. For the food of years past will be of small account to you. Continually go about the meadows and feed sheep of the Lord. Go again and again to the still waters. Drink and be satisfied. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. That daily coming to God seeking to meet with him, knowing him. I think it's also really important just to emphasize that that the trials we go through are not a punishment from God. God does not punish us. We may make poor choices and we may reap the consequences of poor choices in our lives, but what we go through is discipline, not punishment. In 1 Peter 2.24 it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We are not being punished. Jesus has been punished for everything, for all time. And I think that's really important. And in 1 John it says, we don't need to fear. Fear has to do with punishment. We're not being punished. We don't need to fear. Perfect love drives out fear. So again, I think knowing God's amazing love is so important as we go through circumstances that could make us fear. Verses 7 to 10, the Father's discipline, talking about what the discipline of God is like. God is treating you as sons. 
And if you're left without discipline, you're not really a son. And he talks about having had earthly fathers, and they disciplined us for a short time. But he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. So, you know, this is an illustration from life. Many of you will know and understand this illustration. Some of you will not. You might have forgotten, if you're not a parent and you were a child, what it was like. For those of you who are parents, I found this quite helpful just in terms of understanding it, having kids of my own. But you discipline them in order to teach them. Sometimes we get it wrong, but the goal is we're disciplining them in order to teach them, in order to bring out things in their character. So I had this last night. I said to the kids, Fliss is under the weather. We'd had dinner. I needed to go through this again. So I said, kids, tonight, because this doesn't happen very often, could you, could you please go upstairs and clean your teeth? And when I say go upstairs and clean your teeth, could you go upstairs and clean your teeth and then get into bed? Um, because mummy's tired and I need to do this and we still need to cook and, and you've had a long day. Yes, yes, daddy, okay, yes, we'll do that, yes. So they went upstairs and they went straight into Toby's room, bang, 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 shout, 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 found them under the bed hiding, doing all kinds of stuff. And I was so disappointed, not out of experience, because I know that that's not the normal, but I was so disappointed because I explained, like, this is what I'd like you to do. And, and so then there was a consequence, no, no reading time tonight. And then there were tears uh, from one of them anyway. Um, and so then I explained, because I'd been going through this passage, I said, do you know why we discipline you? Because you're angry. No. Do you know why we discipline you? No. It's because we love you. It's because we want you to grow in these things. And, and there's still tears running. So I said, no, you're sad now, but we want you to learn something that's so much more important than whether you get reading time at bedtime tonight. And I found that really helpful, having that parallel. So it might be helpful to think back. If you, if you have kids of your own, it's probably easy to see that from a father's or mother's perspective. If you don't, you can maybe think back to when you were a younger child and try and relate to that and relate to God through that. And I think that's important because as we grow up, as we become adults, we become independent of our parents. And the natural is we move out of that relationship where we have discipline and we have to respond to that. We become independent on our own and we have a different sort of relationship with him. But our relationship with God doesn't change like that. It's different. He's always our father and we're always totally dependent on him even as we become independent from our parents. We're still completely dependent by God. says he upholds the whole universe by his word. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here. That's Hebrews 1. So we need to look again at Jesus. How did Jesus do it? He was a son. He's the son, the firstborn. How did he behave? How was he obedient to God? And so I think I find it really useful thinking about him in the garden of Gethsemane just before he was taken, just before the cross. And he was, he would say he was weary. It says he was weary with sorrow. But he came boldly before his father. He came pleading. He embraced what God had put before him. And in Hebrews 5.8 it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And so if that's true for Jesus, that's so true for us. And I think that's so helpful knowing he's gone before us in this, but in such a bigger, more profound way that we'll never have to go through anything like that. We'll never have to be separated from our father like he was. And he's done that for us. Also, I find this bit quite funny as a parent. I think there's a little bit of humor in here. Our parents disciplined us as seen best to them. That makes me think, yeah, they made some mistakes, didn't they? 
You know, they, they tried to do a good job. They didn't really know what they were doing, but they did it as seemed best to them. They made a bit of a hash of it. But it says of God, God's not like that. God disciplines us for our good. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows exactly what the goal is. And more than that, he knows how to accomplish it. He knows that he's going to. So when I discipline the kids, I hope that when I say such and such, or when there's this consequence, or when we have this line of things happening, I hope that that is going to bring about fruit. I hope that's going to help them to learn respect, or love, or forgiveness, or kindness, or whatever it might be. But God is not hoping that there will be this fruit in you. God knows, because God's actually got the power to do it. And so when God disciplines us, he's not doing it in some vain hope that we might grow to be more like him. He knows what he's getting. He knows that he's going to grow that fruit in us. He's the master potter at the wheel. And he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make it flop. He knows exactly what he's doing. It may not feel very nice to the pot, but he knows what he's doing. So I'm going to talk about dentists. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I always thought people made a really big deal about going to the dentist because I'd always gone to the dentist. I never had a problem. I quite enjoyed it, really. It was quite fun. And then my wisdom tooth grew into the back molar and made a big cavity, and I had to go and have root canal three times. I don't like going to the dentist anymore. (laughs) Not a lot of fun for those of you who've had hands up if you had a root canal. Yeah, okay, so I sympathize. It's not very nice, is it? So... um, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, even going to the dentist is bearable if you think there'll be a positive outcome. So when you went to the dentist, actually I didn't get a positive outcome because the root canal didn't work and I ended up having to have the tooth out. But (laughs) when you go to the dentist, you're going and you're going to go through him injecting that stuff into your tooth, which hurts the first time a lot, and wiggling around in your mouth and it being awkward because you're hoping for something better. You're hoping it's going to save your tooth. Okay? And... There's a goal that you've got. There's a goal that the dentist has got in what you're going through. And God's discipline is like that. He has a goal. His goal will be accomplished, not like my tooth, which went in the bin. Okay? But he's got a good and wonderful goal. And it tells us what his goal is. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's sharing in his holiness. He wants us to share in his holiness. He wants us to know peace. And he wants us to have his righteousness, to be like him. Amazing things to share in. Amazing things that we all aspire to. Those same things are what he wants for us. And it's such a great promise. As we go through trials and tribulations, we know that that's his goal. That's the aim. And if we see it for what it is and don't despise it or be wary of it, then we'll yield that fruit. I think helpful to remember Jesus in Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy set before him enjoyed the cross. And what was that joy? That joy was glorifying the Father. That joy was being obedient. But part of that joy was seeing many, bringing many sons to glory, was taking a people for his name, saving from the evil one to enjoy his goodness and enjoy his love forever. In John 17, as he's praying in the garden, the high priestly prayer, 
He says, Father, I desire that they whom you've given me may be with me where I am, I with you in glory, to see my glory that you've given me, that the love with, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That was part of his goal that he's accomplished. That's his desire for each of you and for me, that we might be with him, that we might dwell with him forever. We sung about that earlier when we've been there 10,000 years All of this will seem like very transient because we're sons and daughters. So when we experience testing, we experience it as beloved, beloved children. But it's so difficult. We might pray, God, please change my character. I do this quite a lot. Please make me more like this. Please help me with this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I want you to rub it off. I want to be more like you. And then what does he do? He puts you somewhere to train that into you. Well, I'm going to rub this off you. Okay, you think you're really... I'm, I'm struggling with selfishness. Well, now you're married. So work on that. Now you've got kids, or whatever it might be. He puts us in situations where he's able to draw those things out of us and work on them. And we can become weary if we don't recognize his hand. If we don't persist. If we, and we can become weary, most of all, if we don't know his love, his delight, his care. And I'm going to just... Keeping going over that, because I think that's so important. And if we don't know his love, the discipline will become a burden to us. But if we recognize his heart, and if we learn to speak that to ourselves, to preach to ourselves daily these truths, we can look and we can see that fruit as well that he's looking for, being like him. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So, Onto the, onto the second part. Get up. This bit is action. Lift up your drooping hands. Drooping hands. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Because of everything that's just gone before, lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So I think the verses that have gone before have explained that life is hard and why and have helped us to look to him and know his loving purposes for us. And the whole book of Hebrews has been explaining what Christ has done for us, what he's accomplished, that he's better than angels, that he's a better Moses, that he's a better high priest, that he's the only saviour, that he's better than the temple, that he's better than the sacrifice who's been going over. Jesus is better than this, better than this, better than this. And now we're moving on in the knowledge of all of that to action. Now that you're not going to be weary or lose heart, because you know this, let's get up, let's strengthen ourselves. And these commands are rooted in the work God is doing in us. It's not something you have to go off and do without God. God's working in you, so strengthen yourselves. Make firm the feeble knees, strengthen the weak hands. This is a quote from Isaiah, and I looked, when I look back, it fits in, obviously, to the verses around it, which are full of promises. So before this bit, strengthen your weak hands and your feeble knees, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. So God is going to bring plenty out of hardship and goodness. And it's followed. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Your God will come. He will come and save you. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So that command to be strong is 
right in the middle of promises of the wonderful things that God is doing. Promises that we've already seen the guarantee of in Jesus and we know we're going to see come to fruition. Now, I don't know how many of you remember the 1992 Olympics um, and there was a guy called Derek Redman and lots of you might have seen this clip because it's often used as an example of great father-son relationships. So Derek Redman was running the 400 metres semi-final. I think he was quite good. I think they were expecting him to get a medal and he's about halfway round when his hamstring goes and he just pulls up on the track um, in a lot of pain. It looked really sore. And a guy vaults over the fence and runs across the track and it's his dad and he puts his arm around him, gets, takes his weight and together they hobble through to the finish line and he finishes the race. You know, he doesn't get a medal but he finishes the race and you know, he was in a lot of pain. He could have just sat down but he strengthened himself. Even though something was, something was out of joint, a muscle had pulled or torn, he strengthened himself and he was strengthened by someone coming alongside him to finish the race, to press on to the goal, which for him was to finish that race, whatever it took. And I think that, I find that helpful looking at this verse as an exhortation for us. Strengthen the weak hands. He's not just saying, oi, you, get up, get on with it. He's saying to us, let's strengthen the weak hands. Let's strengthen the feeble knees. Let's encourage one another. Let's get alongside one another and help one another. And let's make straight paths for our feet. That's getting stuff out of the way. That's, Melanie preached plenty on that last week, so I won't go back to it, but taking the stuff that's in the way, getting it in a bin bag, and getting it out of the way. If you want to go back over that, please listen to excellent preach from last week. So going on, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one's immoral or unholy like Esau has sold his birthright for a single meal. So again, how shall we run this race? How shall we make that path straight? What shall we take out of the way? Strive for peace and holiness. Now striving for peace sounds a bit, a bit of an oxymoron. Striving for peace. Peace is something you kind of relax into. Striving is, is doing, but it's, it's marrying up what God's already doing in us. He's bearing that peaceful fruit of righteousness and so we can pursue peace. So we can work at peace with others. It's not just something we hand it all over to God and let God do. He's asking us to pursue that. Uh, And that's difficult. We might find others difficult to get on with. We might have disagreements. I can be very critical, I've noticed recently. And that can lead to bitterness and that can cause trouble and division. And actually, I've had to repent of that. But when we submit ourselves to God, we can take hold of those thoughts that come up against him and we can start speaking well of one another, coming alongside one another. Practically, the things that really help is when you get alongside and pray for one another. It's so hard to be not at peace with someone when you're praying for them or when you're helping them practically in some way or when you're meeting with someone to be accountable and confess to one another those are such powerful ways of uprooting anything that would seek to get in the way. And he says, see to it that you obtain the grace. That's another kind of collective command. See to it together. That grace is on offer. It's not something you have to earn, but that you obtain it, that you come into it, that you have willing and open hearts 
to receive it. And the expectation is everyone should receive the grace of God. So see to it that you obtain it. And then lastly, he says, be holy as I'm holy. And we need to be ruthless about that. Um, Going back to Mel last week. Finally, there's a warning. Um, Esau. And I think this warning is in here. It kind of almost seems to put a downer on the end of the passage. But it's a reminder that these things are important. There's a gravity to these things. Um, And they're not trivial. Peace, holiness, coming into the things that God's got. And what it's really saying is Esau had a great gift. He had a future, his birthright, things that God had given to him, and he was hungry, and so he traded it all in for a meal to overcome a short-term problem, a short-term trial he was going through, which was he was hungry, he traded it away, something that had lasting value. And then he had the really sad and unfortunate consequences of that that he wept over, but it was done. And I think it's just a, it's an encouragement and a stirring to us that we take care with our walk, that we seek peace and pursue holiness. So, just recapping the big picture here, I think the big picture here is, is the cross. It's consider Jesus. That's what I want you to do this week. I want you to consider him, that he went to the cross because of his love, because of the Father's love. He himself bore our sins, so we're not punished. We are accepted as God's children And God is not a reluctant father, but he loves us. Secondly, God is sovereign over all things. And finally, God is good, and he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. Phil, if you want to come back up with the band. Um, Just to finish off, uh, you might know this story. In the 1860s, there was a a very well-to-do lawyer called Horatio Spafford, who has written a hymn. Um, and there was a big fire in Chicago, and he lost all of his fortune. His real estate went up in flames. He was good friends with D.L. Moody and some other evangelists, and they were planning a trip to England to come and evangelize the English and uh, come and join him on a campaign. So he was going to go with his wife and his daughters, uh, and then something came up business-wise, so he sent them on ahead on the boat, and then he was going to come and follow them. And the ship got hit by another ship and sunk. And his wife cabled him uh, from, from where she was, saying, saved alone. And so he then got on the ship to go and join his wife, having lost his daughters. And he penned these, these famous words um, from the hymn, which if you don't know it, please look it up. Um, when peace, like a river, attends my way, when sorrows, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul so 2 Corinthians 4 says we do not lose heart for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal I think there might be a couple ways to respond to that it might be, particularly for those words I read from Spurgeon earlier and talking about knowing God daily, walking with him, knowing my intimacy with him, knowing the Father heart, knowing his love for you. If that's resonated, that you've been stuck in kind of cold experience, past experience, and you need to come and encounter him again today, then you might want to ask someone to pray with you. 
and come and meet with him as we come and worship. And secondly, some of you will be going through trials. Some of you will be going through difficulties that will be trying to make you weary or faint-hearted. And if, if that's you, then again, I want you to get someone alongside you to pray, to encourage you, to build you up, and get people alongside you this week to strengthen those weak knees, to strengthen those drooping hands, um, and to be around you as you consider him, as you look to Jesus, who's accomplished all of this for you because of the Father's love for you.